All right, so we're up to chapter two. Perik bet. All right. Perik bet. Moshe has gone out to his brethren. So he goes out, he sees their suffering. This is on page 115, chapter 2, 11th Pasuk. It says, We talked about that last week, to his brothers. He sees their suffering. So he sees the Egyptian beating a Hebrew from his brethren. So you see straight out that the brethren are the Hebrews. Moshe is a Jew. We talked last week how that came, came to be. Now we're up to the 12th verse. He looked this way and that way. He turned this way and that way. He saw there was no man. There's nobody else. So he hit the Egyptian and buried him in the sand. So he hit the Egyptian means he killed the Egyptian. It was unclear to us the first makeh. The word makeh can mean to hit or to kill. If you hit long enough, you kill. One fifteen, chapter two. So it says he hit, he beat the Egyptian, and he buried him in the sand. What does it mean vayarki enish? He saw there was nobody. There are two possibilities here. One is he saw there was nobody. And he figured no one's going to see. He thinks no one can see. So he can get away with it. That's one possibility. That's what he believes. Nobody, nobody. So it's safe to do what he thinks should be done, which is to stop. To stop, I presume, because the Egyptian's hitting the Jew. So he's stopping the Egyptian from killing the Jew, maybe. He's saving the Jew's life. It's possible. Or he's stopping the Egyptian from hurting the Jew more. And no one else is around. No one's going to know. That's one possibility of Ayaki Enish. Second possibility is Ayarki Enish, and no one is around. That the main point is no one else cares. No one's going to. No one's going to stop. So the Malchum Sheinish. So he steps in there. To he, he realizes he operates as an individual in a place when nobody else is going to do anything. The emphasis being on the singularity of Moshe, the fact that he operates alone. That's a very important point about Moshe as we have spoken and it resurfaces many many times in the Chumash Moshe's singularity, Moshe's aloneness and one of the places, I think the most powerful place where it comes up in the story is the story of the golden calf that's actually a very critical story Moshe comes down the mountain Moshe's on the mountain and when he's on the mountain he's informed by God go down your people have corrupted themselves. Reishi, Kishichet Amchad, chapter 32. So he's told Moshe is pleased with God, and then God agrees not to destroy the people. I'll destroy them and make you a nation. Moshe prays, Vayicham Moshe, chapter 32. and God is relenting of the evil. And the next pasuk is all done. It's Vayifen, Vayeren, Moshe, Menahar. Moshe, Vayifen, he turned around and he goes down the mountain and when he goes down the mountain so his beloved disciple Yoshua is waiting for him the whole time he waits and in his absence the point of that story is in his absence in Moshe's absence all the people that you think might be his supporters or might uh, namely his main supporters literally supporters in the Chumash 
which are found in chapter 17, we'll get to all this, in the story of Amalek, when Moshe would raise his hands up, they, Israel would win, when Moshe's hands were put down, Amalek would win. So Moshe, and his hands are too heavy. So two people support his hands, his supporters. One is named Aaron, his brother, and the other is Chur. Aaron v'chur. They support him. When he comes down, and Moshe, before he leaves, in chapter 24, tells the people, I'm leaving. Aaron and Chur are with you. If you have any problems, speak to Aaron and Chur. And he goes up the mountain to get the Uchot. What happens? Before he gets back down the mountain, the people are worried that he's not going to show up. They approach Aaron, and they say to Aaron, make for us a god. Because Moshe is God. Golden calf. So they don't approach Chur in the, in the Chumash. Chur disappears off the... We don't know what happened to Chur. He's not present in the text at all. He's missing. Missing in action. The measure says he's kill, they kill him. But we don't know. He's not in the text. Aaron is... They request Aaron to make a golden calf. To make a god. Which he does. He makes an ego. So his two supporters then, in the previous story, and there are all kinds of literary links of the two stories, his two supporters, one of whom disappears off the face of the earth, and the other builds an Egel. So much for those two. And now who's left? Yoshua is waiting for him. Yoshua is his beloved disciple, who doesn't know what's happening. Because they hear the cries, and Yoshua says, it must be a war. He has no idea what's happening, because he hasn't been in the camp. He waits faithfully for Moshe all these days, many days. But the point of that story is that what Yeshua hears and what Moshe hears are very different. So that essentially, that story, the point of the Chumash, among other things, is that Moshe comes down the mountain, he's completely alone. He has nobody else. His own brother sold him out. His other friends support a Chur, who knows what happened to him. Not around. And his beloved disciple, faithful pupil, disciple, Yoshua, he's, he's, he is devoted to Moshe, but he doesn't hear what Moshe hears. In other words, he's not on the same wavelength. He likes Yoshua, he loves Yoshua, this and that. But Yoshua can't understand what Moshe understands. That's the point of that story. And the Chumash begins that story with the word Vayifen, not by accident. Here we have Vayifen. Vayifen kol vachol. This is, he's about to do something that changes his life. Is this the right behavior according to our Whether he does the right behavior according to our halacha is actually a very interesting question. The, we don't know, actually. In other words... <coughs> because I try to interfere when two people quarrel in all men and Hashem. I mean, mind your own business. And right, that's, what, that's what happens over here. But, but so what is it really? I, well, I never know what to answer. Here's the point. The, the first point is that the interesting, you call it halakhic question, the interesting question is this, which the Gemara doesn't discuss. So we, we don't actually know the case. In other words, if, let's say if Ruvain's hitting Shimon, okay, and certainly and someone, a bystander should stop that. That's clear. The question is, this is a very relevant question. The question is, let's say A is hitting B. Okay? And you're C. So what is obvious is that the Torah says, Lo you shouldn't stand idly by. You have the obligation, if you, if you can, to stop it. When you think he's going to kill you. Well, no. Let's say, even if you think he's not going to kill him, let's say he's hitting him. But, 
the question would be, what force can you use to stop him? That comes up even in the case of killing. In other words, let's say the Gemara's case is where A is chasing B to kill him, okay? But we can assume he may kill him. Which may be the case over here in the Torah, it's possible. And you can stop that person by, obviously if you kill the person, you stop him, it's called the Rodef. If you kill the Rodef, it's fine. What about, the Gemara says, if you could stop him without killing him? You could injure him and not kill him, and you killed him. Are you considered, is that homicide? Have you, are you, Mark discusses it and comes out and concludes that yes, if you the doctrine of minimum force, you can't use more force than is necessary. What the Gemara never discusses is the following case. Now, you could say that every case of hitting could turn into murder. Probably this is so. But let's say, you knew, let's say hypothetically, you knew that so-and-so was hitting somebody else, beating them. They're not going to kill them, they're going to injure them. You can stop it by killing the person. Is that permissible or not? That's a very interesting question, I think. Someone is beating someone up. You have a gun, you can't, and you're standing up far away. You could shoot, with, let's say, with the, you'd probably kill them. We'll assume it's, with some certainty you would kill the person. Is that considered legitimate? Because you're actually killing someone who's not going to kill the other person, but is going to injure the other person. Now, it could be that, that Allah would say that since it's probable the person, the person could die, you're allowed, but the, 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 most of these cases, there is, no, there is no actual source for it. That's an interesting problem. The, the, the relevance to us in the case of Moshe, I mentioned last week, does the Torah it seem to condemn Moshe for this behavior or not? Is there any sense that Moshe did the wrong thing? I argued last week, it's not my argument, Sternberg suggested it, I agree with it, that the Chumash has got out of its way to use the same word for both. It's Mitzri Makeh, even though it's obvious that in the case of Moshe he killed him because he buries him in the sand in the case of the Mitzri it's not clear at all it says is in the process of hitting him so you could say that if he's going to keep hitting him he's going to die and Moshe prevents it that's possible so it's unclear yeah. so I don't understand the word but I wonder why the same exact word isn't used, that maybe that in and of itself says that it wasn't the same. No, it is the same word. It's the same, it's the same, it's same identical word. One is in the, one is, Maka is in the process of hitting, uh-huh. and the other is he hit. Perfect yeah. form, he hit. It's identical. Okay. It's an identical word. <coughs> now. Um, it, it sounds like two tests of uh, the English word initiation. Like he was initiated by passing these two tests. So what's about these two tests that he, like that's what made him a leader? Eventually. Well, there are three tests. I think we'll see. We'll get to the tests. But I agree. It's a, <coughs> it's a demonstration of his. It's more than that. In other words, he, in killing the Egyptian, he's doing two things. <coughs> First of all, in killing the Egyptian, he does something from which he can never. Return. I mean, <coughs> this will result in his going into exile. And I think the other point of Ayakata Mitzri is that it's not just interfering between two people. The next story is two Jews. But in killing the Egyptian, in effect, he's not just killing a person, but he's killing Ayabasiv Lotam. He sees their suffering. So it means the context is that of, is that of the suffering, slavery. So the act that he does 
certainly from Paro's perspective, it's not just he interfered between two people, Jew and Egyptian, but what he did was, in effect, took a stand against, against, against the system, against slavery, in which case he becomes a danger to Paro. It's not that Paro cares so much about, he may, about murder per se, but what he cares about is anybody who threatens to upset the system, and that's what Moshe does in effect. And doing that, his life is, 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 the die is cast. It's been determined. Yes? So the die is cast. As soon as he intervenes, he is making a statement and he's in big trouble no matter what. Right? right. The other thing is that if, if people next, find out, he hides it, he buries it. But if he didn't kill the Egyptian, if he just touched him or prevented him from doing his job, Right. He's already in big trouble by intervening anyway. That could be. That's right. The other thing is that there's this juxtaposition between the two Igrees who are fighting. To them, he speaks. We haven't gotten yet to that. That's okay. next. But this one <laughs> sort of suggests that he can't just say to the Egyptian, "Why do you do that's this right. to another human being?" Yeah, of course, that wouldn't make that wouldn't work. That's clear. The second case is by <coughs> The next day, he goes out. And two Jews <coughs> are Nitzim. Nitzim could mean to quarrel, but it means more than quarrel. It sounds like they're already in a bat, in a fight, right? Found Hebrews fighting, I said, that's correct. Nitzim is to fight. He sees two Jews fighting with each other. He said to the wicked one, doesn't say which is the wicked one, because they're both fighting. Both. He said to the Russia, "Why would you hit your 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 Re'echa? Re'echa is your neighbor, your friend. What are you two people fighting about?" He could be saying this in many different ways. It's a it's a question, which of course typically is not a question. Why do you do this? It's not a question. It's a, it's a it's a critique. Why would you hit Re'echa? One might say in the context of the previous verse. Thank you very much. In the context of the previous verse, one could say, maybe he's saying, among other things, why are you fighting with each other? Don't we have other problems? They're trying to kill us, right? What are you fighting with your neighbor? What are you for? It's crazy. But in any event, he, he calls the Russia. He says, speaks. He, he doesn't hit. He doesn't try to break it up. He talks. And now we have the answer, which is very telling. This is also a defining moment for Moshe, I think. So this fellow says, who has appointed you to be an officer and a judge of us? Would you, would you think to kill me? Probably Omer probably think. Would you think to kill me the way you killed the Egyptian? Right? So it's also rhetorical. Hostile. Moshe was frightened and said, surely the matter is, is, is known so he had buried the Egyptian with the hope that nobody would know but apparently somebody knows and not just knows but the important point is speaks openly about it he's not going to hide it what are you going to kill me we kill the Egyptian it is known in the... no the medrash is very interesting over here the matter is known which means I'm in trouble the Medrash says, of course, says the Medrash, now that the matter is known, now I understand why these people are in so much trouble. Because they're fighting with each other. And the important point over here, the critical point over here, 
is the statement of Moshe, who made you an officer and a, and, a, and a judge. And here the point is the following, the main point, I think. That statement, who made you a judge, is an echo of a previous story in the Chumash, probably two stories, but one in particular interesting, because it fits in with many things. The story of uh, Mitzrayim, the culture of Mitzrayim, the story of Mitzrayim, the exodus from Mitzrayim, has a very striking parallel in the book of Breshit. It's one of the essays in Mahavada, the story of Sodom. Sodom, Lotan Sodom, has many, many, many parallels, literary links to the story of of Mitzrayim. Many. And one of them is the following. One of maybe 20 is the following. That when Lot is, was it this week's parasha? This week's parasha. Lot is in Sodom, and when he's in the city of Sodom, two, two, two strangers come to town, and they're sleeping in the streets, and Lot asks them to come into his house. So he does. He takes, they, they, first they refuse, they, they, they're his guests. And when the people of Sodom find out that he has two guests in his house, they surround his house. And he says, and they want these two to take out these two guys to brutalize these two guests. So Lod walks out of the door and he says to the townspeople, he says, He says, my brethren, don't, don't, do, don't do evil. Right? I have two daughters, take, take my two daughters and don't take these strangers who have come under the protection of my roof. That's what he says. Okay, maybe sick, but that's what he says. And the people of the town re- reject this. They, they say to Lot, what about this guy Lot? Look at this. The guy came, he's a stranger, he's a gear, he's a stranger in town. And now he's judging us. Now we're going to do worse to you. And they come to get Lot instead of the two strangers. point is, that is the response that the angels were sent, God's messengers were sent to Sodom, this week's parasha, to check it out, to see whether the bad things God is hearing is actually accurate. They are sent to be witnesses. And because Abraham had prayed for the town of Sodom, maybe they're 50 righteous, maybe they're 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. And when he gets into the town, when they come to town, the whole town is surrounding this house, from, from old to young. So obviously there's nobody in Sodom that's any good. The one person who's somewhat good as Lot but the people of the town they write what does what Abraham pray for in this week's parsha? What what's his complaint against God that the judge of the world is not going to do justice he wants, he wants mishpat he wants justice what do the people of Sodom say to Lot when he comes to when he takes in the strangers what you're going to be a judge they reject judgment. They reject the judgment. We don't want to be judged. You're nobody. You're an outsider. We don't want the outsider judging us. And the Chumash in our chapter picks up exactly this point: that these two people, that Moshe, the two Jews, the two Hebrews, Ivrim, that are fighting. Okay, that when Moshe tries to intervene and stop it, your friends, what are you fighting for? So the one says to Moshe, "What? Who appointed you as a sarvish of faith, Oleinu? In other words. Moshe, that what they're saying is, would you kill us the way you killed the Egyptian? It's a very telling statement, actually, extremely. Which is, first of all, it's the rejection of any kind of judge. Of, of, it's rejection of, 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 of Mishpat, which is the quality of Sodom, and by extension, I would say, 
the quality of, uh, of uh, Mitzrayim. These are, the Jews he's talking to are very Egyptian because the Egyptian culture is rejecting Mishpat. The same way Sodom rejects Mishpat. The people of Sodom are, they're all, they're all Sodom. There's nobody in the town that's not Sodom. Moshe's first encounter with Jews, first time he encounters Jews, is they say to him, what, would you kill us the way you killed the Egyptian? Which is problematic, first of all, because Moshe realizes, since they're talking about it openly, he can't keep it a secret, he's going to get in trouble. But the other point is, and apart from the fact that they're rejecting him as a judge, there's something else over here which is very striking. Yes? They may see him as a parallel to Lot. He's the outsider. But would you kill us the way you killed the Egyptian is actually striking for a different reason. What? You killed the Egyptian. In other words, you want to kill the Egyptian. I killed you. I killed the Egyptian to try to kill a Jew. But yeah, that's true. I did plead guilty. But from their perspective, something very striking about this. What, you would kill the Egyptian? In other words, the they internalize Of course. Egyptian. Exactly the point. It happens all the time. They were actually, in terms of what they value, okay, yes, the Egyptians may be beating them and killing them, that doesn't matter, but the point is, they're the Egyptians. So, what, you kill the, we kill the Egyptian, is it right? Haraktatah Mitzri, there's a sense over here, now this is Moshe's first encounter. In other words, who, now one chapter later, God says to Moshe, go back and save these people. And if you're Moshe, you say to yourself, it's very nice, let someone else handle it, why would I risk my life? To save these people, first of all, are they worthy of being saved? And B, get this point in a second, they're also responsible for me having, for me having to go into, I mean, Pharaoh wants to kill Moshe in the next passage or two, because Pharaoh here is exactly what, what Moshe did. How did, how did Paro found, find out? Moshe hit him in the sands. He thought nobody knew, but somebody knows, because the Jews are talking about it, right? Moshe says, Ochein no davar in, in Pasuk 14 and Pasuk 15 says, by Yishma Paro et davar hazeh. Pharaoh heard this davar. So notice in 14, Moshe says, okay, no da, the matter is the davar is known. In 15, Paro hears the davar, which means that one way or another, I'm not saying this guy went to Paro and told Paro. What I'm saying is that indirectly somehow, the fact that people talk, bad news travels fast or whatever it is, that Paro hears this thing. And therefore, Vayivakesh, Rogat Moshe, he, silk, he seeks to kill Moshe because, as I mentioned before, he sees Moshe as one who has taken his stand against slavery. It's not a, about the Jew and the Egyptian. But rather, he's killed the Egyptian who's beating the Jew. He's already identified with their suffering. So that Paro can't allow. Someone who identifies with the suffering is actually dangerous. But how does Paro hear about it in the first place? The text intimates that the Jews, one way or the other, are responsible for Moshe being life is in jeopardy, and Vayivrach Moshe b'nei Paro, he has to run away. Vayeshev b'yeretz midyon, Vayeshev arabeah. The Medrash, of course, in rather cynical, but maybe correct fashion, asked the question, the text says he walked this way and that way, so there was nobody. So he must have, he said, what, what's the pshat? But, but people know. Yeah, so, right. But the one guy certainly knows, the one who was saved. The Medrash says the one who's saying this is the one that he saved. So there's another element over here. And, I, and what is the Medrash getting at? This guy, I, I, here's, here's how I would formulate it, what the Medrash is saying. If the one who was saved is doing the talking, well, you killed the Egyptian. The Egyptian, the guy's beating you to death yesterday. 
killed the Egyptian, then there's another quality over here. If it's the one who is saying that talks, there's another quality, which is he's not very grateful for what Moshe did. It's, 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 it's ingratitude. But ingratitude is how the book of, 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 of Exodus begins, right? That's how the book begins. The point is, the book begins by telling us something about this Pharaoh. A new Pharaoh emerged who didn't know Joseph. Again, the word to know. He didn't, maybe he didn't, maybe he didn't know Joseph. That's not possible. He didn't know Joseph. He didn't know him personally. But here's what he should have done. He, he, he has empowered the, the Pharaoh. He saved Egypt. And he made power of a very powerful man. He gave power all the money all the cattle and all the land. What means he didn't know Joseph? It means he chooses not to know Joseph. It means that what, 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 uh, what defines Egypt in this, in this book, among other things, apart from beating up on the, on the stranger and outsider, what, the, what defines Egypt is the deep sense of, of not being grateful, kind of ingratitude. It's what you have also in the story of Saddam. The story of Saddam, this is an obvious point, but it's not so obvious, I discovered that. This week's parsha, the strangers come to town, and Lot takes into two of these two strangers into his house. People of, of Sodom surround the town, and Lot says, what are you doing? Take my daughters. What? Who asked you? You're a stranger in town. Now you're dictating terms. Now we're going to get you. Now we're going to brutalize you. We're going to molest you. Now what is wrong with that? Many things. But here's what's really wrong with it. Who are they talking to? They're talking to Lot. Right? The town, all the town comes, right? Who was Lot? Here's what I would say if I'm Lot. Why, why do you exist altogether? That's the question. You know? You only exist because of me. The town of Sodom was captured five chapters earlier by the four kings. They'll never go home again. Abraham saves the town of Sodom. Why, why did he save the town of Sodom? He's no interest in Sodom. Right? We just read it. Abraham heard his brother Lot was captured. So because Lot was captured, his uncle comes and with his 318 men rescues Lot, rescues Sodom, rescues all the property, all the food, all the people, everything. And the king of Sodom says, you can keep the all, all the stuff you took, Abraham says, no, no, you keep it all. I don't want it. It's all yours. Take it all back. Okay. So, Lot, they should have a plaque for Lot in the public square. Responsible for our... You don't exist without Lot. The point is, that's the ultimate ingratitude. It's so obvious. That's, that's the dome. Among, among other things. No sense of gratitude. They only exist because of him. They don't exist for any other. Without him, they don't exist. But, but no. That, that's, 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 that's Mitzrayim. That's Mitzrayim. That's the, and that's the Jews. The, that's, that's the Medrash. The one that he saved is going gonna, to gonna, gonna rat on him. He saved his life. It's exactly... What, what does Moshe see? What, what does the reader see? The Jews in Egypt and that, that he encounters. I'm not saying they're wonderful Jews, but the two he meets first. The first two people that he meets fighting with each other, basically these are not Jews. These are Egyptians. In terms of what they say, in terms of what they... You know, in terms of their behavior, in terms of what they say to Moshe, this is, this is, these are Egypt. And these are the people that Moshe is going to be told to go back, put your own life in risk, to save these people. To which Moshe probably says to himself, 
He's very polite to God in a way. He says, why? Why would I do such a thing? I have a very nice life where I am. I'm married to the priest of Midians. Too. I love the priest of Midian. He's a very ethical man. We, we get along just great. Okay, I'm married to his daughter. We'll see about that, but fine. But I got a, I got a, I got a, I got a wife. I got kids. I got. I actually have a job, and and I'm and I'm, I'm together with a, with a Cohen, someone who shares my values. Why in the world would I go back to save these miserable people? That's the question. So, so yeah. So that's a very important point. The people that these two Jews, this first encounter, is a very negative encounter, and not on, on top of that, they're responsible for me being almost being killed because they can't keep their mouth shut whether intentionally or unintentionally, Paro hears about this because of them. That's the connection of the Davar and the Davar. Davar, certainly the matter is known. Yes, what do you want to say back there? And we'll take all the other comments. Yes? That the last time um, a Pharaoh heard something, it was when he heard that Joseph was reunited with his brothers, and it was a very supportive reaction that he had. Tell them to come, I'll give them all this stuff, and when they don't bring any of their stuff, I'll supply them this time. This pharaoh here is not quite the same thing. It's not so supportive. No, no it's a misreading in my view. He's not so supportive. He's, He's supportive right? the first time. Not so supportive. Yes, it sounds. You don't want to lose him? No. no, we can't lose him. Joseph can't go. It's something else. What Paro is concerned about, since you mentioned it, when Paro hears that Joseph's brothers are in town, he says to Joseph. You know, Joseph says, he says, tell my father, come down, I'm going to take care of you. But if you read it carefully, you'll see that Paro and Yosef say two different things. What the Paro says, which the brothers and, and Jacob and the brothers don't actually do it, he says, tell your father not to worry about anything. They shouldn't bring their stuff down with them. They'll come and they will dwell, they will be in the land of Egypt. And Joseph actually says to Yaakov and the brothers, you'll be near me in the land of Goshen. This becomes a point of great contention between Paro and Yosef. What Paro does not want is for the brothers to come down and to be part of Joseph's little, Joseph's house. Paro doesn't want Joseph to have a house. Paro wants Joseph to be the outsider who works for Paro. But Yosef wants to retain the identity of the, of the family so he maneuvers in such a way that the brothers will stay near him. And he sends the brothers to speak to Paro. And when he tells Joseph that's a whole script, just tell Paro, you shepherds, you can't eat this, that, the next thing. And Paro deviates from the script. Paro's supposed to say, oh, great idea, why don't you stay with Joseph? And he doesn't say that. He makes them requests. And then when he makes the request, he goes to Joseph. They've come to you. You can stay here. By the way, if you know about them that they are valued men, they can have, have, a, have a job for them. And that actually is a very important conversation, and I would say disagreement, because from that point on, Joseph is persona non grata with, with Paro and Mitzrayim. Joseph has overstayed his welcome. What Paro does not want in any manner, shape, or form is for the people on the inside, to uh, the outsiders, to have any kind of any base of support. And actually, in that connection, it's exactly what you have at the beginning of Sefer Shemot. What is Paul's worry about the Jews in Egypt? That's part of it. But he says something else. Yes, then what will happen? In the event of war, they'll join the enemy. Playing on the word Yosef, the Nosaf. It's, 
Let me speak a very simple point about paro. The paros are all the same. In the Bible, there's not one paro was different. They're all the same. The paro never changes. What changes in the Bible are the circumstances. Sometimes they need you, and they're all smiles. Sometimes they don't need you, and then you're in big trouble. But there's not a, there's also things a good paro in the Bible. It doesn't exist. As long as Joseph is needed, he's okay. He gets the ring. He gets the chariot. The moment he's not needed, because it's a paradox, the moment you give power what he wants, okay? He has all the land, he has all the cattle, he has all the money. Then you want to speak to power to bury your father, you can't even get an audience. He, can't be, he doesn't go to power. He has to go to the servants to beg. Joseph I'm talking about. And that's how the book of Shemot begins as well. The danger, what Paros don't want, is for the outsider to join up with, with the my, my brother once suggested I don't put him too often but he once suggested something very interesting to me about the story of Saddam it's an interesting thought the people of Saddam surround the house because Lot takes in the strangers what is bugging them? okay so we understand they, they hate strangers they mistreat the outsider we got all that but there's something additional that bothers them suggested by my brother which is he takes in two strangers to his house. But we know something about Lot, about his family. What do we know about Lot's family? This week's, week's parish, actually. He has two unmarried daughters. Two unmarried daughters. And my brother once suggested that the concern of the people of the town is not just he takes in two strangers. He takes in two guys and he has two women. They say to themselves, well, one second. What's this guy? Is he building a little empire within our city? He takes two outsiders, and now he has the two daughters. So that's why God offers his daughters, my brother said. He offers the daughters. No, my, it's not about my daughters. I'm not building an empire. Take the daughters you want. Just what can I do? They're two shepherds. I've got to help them. You know, my uncle taught me this or whatever. He's, but he's, in other words, the issue for Saddam is the issue that what they don't want with this, they're afraid that the stranger will establish themselves within, within our city. And that's what bothers them about the two, two, people, two men who come to town into the house of the man with two unmarried daughters. They're very worried about that. So that's why Lot offers his daughters. But the, th- the thinking of the mentality of Saddam, the mentality of Mitzrayim, the mentality of Pharaoh, the mentality of these two Jews, it's all the same mentality about what? You kill us the way you killed? And the Medrash has it, the Medrash, to emphasize that, says, how, how would they know that nobody saw? No one guy knew, the one that he saves. It's a further link between. So, in other words, whether the Medrash is accurate or not in terms of did it, did it really was it really this way? Typical Medrash. The Medrash is correct. In other words, it may be wrong, but it's still right. Because the point of the Medrash is not to be right about this. The point is to emphasize something about the text, which is true. <coughs> that what Moshe encounters in Mitzrayim is the people who think like Mitzrayim. The same way what the Lord encounters in Sodom are a certain set of values. It's not just that they happen to live in Sodom. There are certain, and Lod himself, of course, part of Lod is also like Sodom. That, that's the point of Lod. Lod is a character who has connections to Sodom and connections... And the Jewish people, I would say, if we want to be more generous in our reading, the Jewish people in Egypt... That's Why did the Torah base the story of the Jews in Egypt upon Lod? The Jews in Egypt are Lod. Because the Jewish people are Lod. On one hand, they are connected to Mitzrayim. They don't, they don't want to leave, right? On the other hand, they do leave. So, like, as Lot leaves. So they are torn in a certain sense. It's not black and white. 
Part of them believes in Moshe, part believes in God, part doesn't want to be in Mitzrayim, and a part of them want to be in Egypt. But the ones that Moshe first meets, the first encounter, is the ones who say, who made you the, the, the judge? We reject judgment. We, we don't accept justice. We don't want Mishmat. That's Sodom. That's Mitzrayim. That's Moshe's first encounter. And not only that, he has to run away. Yes, what do you want to say? Yes? You want to? Yep. No, not anymore. No, not anymore. Okay. Let us continue then. Yes? Uh, you said that Paro is always the same power, and I wanted to disagree, so to speak. Go ahead. Because I think, structurally speaking, uh, the, the whole story uh, is structured differently. What do I mean? Like, uh, in, in Shmo, Paro is the main villain. Right. But in Breshis, uh, when you talk about the stories about Joseph and Mitzrayim, I think the, the, the brothers are the main villain. So that's why Paro doesn't look so negative. Like if you if you uh, compare uh, Paro to Ahasuerosh, let's say, so you need Haman to be the, the, the villain because the, the kind of Ahasuerosh is not a villain enough for an uh, what shall I say for an oral story. Maybe, but my point is first of all the Paro in Sefer Breshit. The first time he meet Paro was not with Yosef. The first Paro was with Abraham, and the fact of the matter is, he comes to Egypt, and, and, and Paro simply take, takes, takes his yeah, wife. Because this foreshadows the Shmot story. Well, it does foreshadow the Shmot story, but, but my Yosef point. No, but I mean, they're all the same. When I, look, Achashverosh is like Paro. Achashverosh, why? Because, I mean, it depends how you read the Megillah, but Achashverosh is somebody. He's not going to just kill you for no reason. That, that's not, that's not Paro. He has a reason. If, if, you, if you don't bother him, he's not going to go out of his... It's not like Haman. Haman's a Malik. Haman will kill you for no good reason. There's no ego. Achashverosh is not that way. It's whatever suits his purposes. If, if suiting his purposes is killing you, he will kill you. But if suiting his purposes is to leave you alone, he leaves you alone. Whatever, whatever works for him. He's not evil in that sense. It is an evil to it. Deep evil. But that's power. If he, if, he, if he can use you with Joseph, he can use him. He knows what Joseph's going to do. Joseph will make him rich, enslave the people. He'll, he'll fulfill Paro's dreams of the cattle and of the lands. That's what, Joseph, that's what Paro gets in chapter 47. Gets all the cattle, he gets all the lands. And Joseph knows how to do it. Take all the food. So they have no food, they got to live. Sell them the food at a high price. Take their money, take their cattle, take their land. It's all, it's all, it's all fixed, basically. So long as he does that, Joseph has a special chariot and he has a ring and Paolo marries him off to the high priest's daughter, whatever. That's great until something happens. Two things happen. First of all, he has it already. And second of all, he suspects that Joseph's bringing some other people into the story. What he likes about Joseph, what Ahasuerus likes about maybe even Haman, certainly Mordechai, he likes the Jews. The Jews are, are outside people who are vulnerable. That's what Paro likes also. It's great because when things go wrong, you can always blame the Jew. That's the point of the Joseph story. Go to Joseph, do whatever he wants. Joseph takes their money, takes their land, takes the cattle. Okay, fine. If you ask Paro who did it, the Jews. Joseph does not. Do, do. That's Ahasuerus. He does nothing in the Megillah. Everybody, he does everything. But he's always, the other one is doing it. Somebody wants to kill the Jews. Who's what? Who, did, who would do such a thing? Come on. That's not really true. It is Haman, but it's Achashverosh. Haman has no power. And the, please, Achashverosh, save the Jews. 
I can't, I can't bring back the decree. Do whatever you want. Take the seal, whatever you want. Comes back next day. How many of the Jews killed? Your Jews don't want to kill anybody, of course. Jews say that I, we don't want a war. No war. We send the decree. He wants the war. He wants to kill Haman's army. But he doesn't want to do it himself. That's my point about power being the same. Yes, he's very benevolent sometimes. He's, he's very nice to Joseph. Come here, take, take, take the chariot, the ring, this, if you bow down to you. But in a certain sense, illusory in the sense that the moment that, because it's a place with no memory, so next, if, if today I love you, but tomorrow I don't need you, so that's, you know, that, that's the way it works. I've seen this in my life in certain circumstances for certain people. Suddenly, if they need you, they love you to death. The moment they don't need you, you don't exist. I've never seen you before. I've seen this, believe me. And it's, uh, that's, that's what I mean by Paro. Haman is a different story. Haman is another story. All right, let's go on now. Let's continue with... Vayishma Paro tadavar azeh vayivakesh l'avokin Moshe. So as I've said, it's, Moshe's taken a stand against the slavery. Vayivrach Moshe b'nei Paro. Vayeshev b'yeretz Midian vayeshev arabair. So Moshe runs away. He runs away to the land of Midian. Interesting place to run. Because Midian is the, the Midianites are the people that brought Joseph down to Egypt in the first place. So we have a retracing. In other words, the story we begin that can unwind because Joseph got to Egypt through the Midianites and now Moses runs off to the Midianites. And this is the beginning of, we know, the exodus from Egypt. The first step is Midian. Step along the way. But he goes to a well, which is an obvious point. The well we have encountered earlier in a couple of different ways, but in two stories in Sefer Breshit, we have marriage scenes at a well. And now we come to marriage scene number three. And the point of the typology is a very simple one. What the Chumash invites us to do is to, is to look at the other two stories. We are comparing and contrasting the other two stories. In terms of comparing and contrasting, let me make a simple point about this methodological point about the Chumash. And that is, Probably the main point is not so much to compare, but rather to contrast. I think that's probably true. But you can't actually contrast things that are not similar. You only can contrast things that are similar. Like apples and oranges, you say. You, you can't contrast them. But if you have apples, you can contrast two kinds of apples, three kinds of apples. That's the point. So the, the, the point of, on one hand, there is the connection between the stories. The Torah invites us to read one story in light of the other. And that's true not only with, it, with it type scenes, that's true in terms of the language. The common language is the na- biblical nar- narrator's way, whether it's the Chumash or anything else, to tell us the language is similar, read these two stories together, note the commonalities, and note the differences. But I would say that it's the differences that are very significant. You know, last night we had a second... Uh, of the three-part series, Why Study Talmud? So last night, the lecture was about so-called conceptual approach to the, to the Talmud. I think we just scratched the surface last night. The focus was almost called the brisk, which the Soloveitchiks were very central in this method. And I have, I mean, I grew up with this. I have many, many, many thoughts about it. But here's one thought about brisk. The real point of the series was not to critique. It wasn't a critique last night. It was more to try to understand how this approach helps us. Each approach which is different, what can we take from it? 
One thing with the, with the brisker approach to the study of Talmud is this. First of all, is a tremendous discipline of thought. That's number one. But number two, what distinguishes brisk, I would say, from some of the other approaches to the study of Talmud is this. The kind of approach one might call pilpul. The pilpulistic approach has to do with, some of it is very interesting, but has to do with looking at ten different sources and building one upon the other. It rests upon finding the commonalities in the different sources. You have one source says this, one source says that, and we build the third one, and you have this whole build this castle. And the briskers are precisely the opposite. Because the main point of brisk is not the commonalities. Pilpul and brisk are opposites, they're mutually exclusive. Because the briskers take two things that seem very, very similar. And their main question is, what is, what is the difference between the two? It's constantly breaking down. It's, it's exactly the opposite. It's, it's tearing down. It's by analyzing in a very careful way. It's pointing to the, the differences, the two halachot they would call it, the differences between two things that appear to be similar, almost identical, but to point out that they're not identical at all, which is always the case. And whether the, whether the fact that they're not, not identical is significant is another story. But to always notice the differences. I would say in the biblical narrative. That's certainly the case. Moshe comes to a well where he's about to meet his future wife and what the Chumash isn't by setting it up this way, what the Torah is saying is when we read the story over here you must read it in conjunction with the other two stories, namely Rebecca's uh, marriage to Yitzchak, Abraham's servant who comes to the well and the story of uh, Yaakov and Rachel when Yaakov meets Rachel when he's traveling to his uncle's house stops along the way, and he comes to a well. Those two stories, those two marriage scenes, are to be read, says the Chumash, understood and thought of as we read the next story of Moshe's marriage at the well. So let's continue now with Moshe at the well. He comes to a well, he comes to the land of Midian, he's coming to a different land, which is another similarity of the stories. The servant of Abraham goes to Abraham's birthplace. Jacob is running also to Haran to his mother's home. So the story takes place outside the land. Here also it's outside Moshe's place of birth, which is Mitzrayim. The priest of Midian had seven daughters. So they, the seven the daughters of the priest of Midian come to draw water to fill up the troughs and to water their father's flock. He sends seven of them. It reminds us straight up, in both the stories of Rivka and also Rachel, it's the woman, in the case of Rivka, a very young woman, girl, who comes to the well to draw the water. So the, 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 the women of the well, we could call them, I guess, right? women of the well. So women of the well, they are, this is another story of the well, and here we have, now the first thing, interesting, in the case of Rivka, the Torah singled out Rivka. I mean, it's the time when the girls draw water by twilight. But this Torah story of Rivka is only about Rivka. There's no other girl in the story. It's just one. The story of Rachel. Rachel comes alone. She's alone. It's very striking because, you know, Laban has another daughter, but she's not there. For whatever reason, Leah is not there. It's just Rachel. He meets Rachel first. But over here, there are seven of them. That's a very important point we'll get to as we continue. The shepherds come and they chase them away. They drive them off. Presumably because 
they have to wait their turn. In other words, the, the water, water is a very precious commodity. So the point is, you don't want to be, you know, become at the end, who knows what's left. So therefore the, in this case, the more powerful ones, I mean the men, chase them away, they have to wait their turn, even though, by the way, this is what the Medrash picks up, even though they are the priests of Midian's daughters. So one might think they have all kinds of privileges being the priest's daughters. Apparently that doesn't help very much for whatever reason. Business is business. Or, in the eyes of the Midrash, paints Yitro as a, as a disenfranchised priest, maybe. Because of his thinking, he wasn't too well liked in Midian. We don't know. But in, in point of fact, these seven daughters of, of, of the priest, by Garshum, they're chased away by the by the other shepherds. It turns out in the story, it would appear, this would happen every single day. In other words, this is not something new. Because Yitro asks his daughters when they come home, how come you're home so early? So it sounds like he's usually home at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, now you're home at 12 o'clock. What happened? Something, something wrong? So it, would, it seems like this was very common. They would come to the well, and others would, they would be chased away. They'd have to wait, wait till the end to get whatever scraps remain, because, you know, the others want the water first. By the way, you see this in the story of Yaakov as well. In the story of Yaakov, just a small point, Yaakov comes to a well. Remember the story? Comes to the well in chapter 29, and on top of the well is a big rock. Right? Yaakov says, what are you waiting for? Why are people standing around? Oh, we can't come until all the shepherds show up. Right? And then we push the rock off the well. Why must they wait till all the shepherds show up? Because they have put the that's head not the shot. Well. That's oh. what people think. But that's that's not the moon, the the well because because who? No. The men had put the no, 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 no. The case well. of Yaakov is no women. No, no. Get the women. In the case of Yaakov, there were some shepherds there. So the Yaakov says, "Why do you wait? We'll take the water. We can't take the water until all the shepherds come." They say, "We can't." The shot is not. Because it's too heavy to push off the well. And Yaakov, through superhuman strength, does it himself. That's not the pshat. The pshat is, that's what that's the Midrash. So, Yaakov is so strong, and so he sees Rachel, and the adrenaline is flowing, who knows. That's all maybe, it does demonstrate a certain amount of strength or, or ambition on Yaakov's part. But the simple pshat is this. You can't take the water before all the shepherds come, because that's the town ordinance. Because water is like gold, you know what I mean? In other words, you have to wait because if you take first before anybody else comes, it's not fair. This way, when you wait till everybody comes, you ensure everybody gets some of the water. But the point is, the water is very precious. Water actually is very precious, was and is today one of the key problems in the world is, is, is the water and the presence of water, who gets the water, how it's distributed. It's not a small thing. So... Um, the fact of the matter is that even with Yaakov you see this, that everybody has to wait until you get the water. So oh, it's very precious. Over here, so the daughters of Midian, they're chased away. Vayigoshum, they're chased away. Vayakom Moshe, Vayoshian. So Moses arose, Vayoshian, he saved them, he delivered them. Vayashket Sonam, and he gave their flock to drink. Notice something interesting over here. That the Chumash uses a word, yes. The Chumash uses a word you wouldn't expect. By Yoshian. By Yoshian, Hoshia, 
Vayosha Shevet Yisrael is not a word it's, a, it's not, in other words, I was in Israel, I was talking to, uh, talking to, uh, I forget who it was, uh, Yukulis, Mary, I forget her first name, but she's a, so she was schmoozing and she said, you know, when I was in Stern College, my English teacher was Rabbi, uh, Rabbi, Rabbi Lichtenstein, he taught, he taught English at Stern for several years. I remember, and I was not a good, you know, was a, we had a whole relation, he says, I remember once I wrote for him an essay, I said, my, my backyard is vast. My backyard is vast. So he, he said to her, Shukulis, the Grand, the Grand Canyon is vast. <laughs> Your backyard is not vast. It might be big, it's not vast. Point is, Vayokal Moshe Vayoshiyan is a word that jumps out at you. And Moses deliv- he delivered them, he redeemed them, right? What? Okay, so they don't get the water at 2 o'clock, they get the water at 5 o'clock. That's redeeming? Let me redeem them. When you have a word that's out of place, you have, always have to ask the question, why is it using that word? And that word is significant, because the first time you encounter Moshe, this is the third time we're encountering this man now, in three stories. The first time is the Jew and the Egyptian. He saves the Jew from the Egyptian. He kills the Egyptian. Let's not forget one thing about chapter 2. The only identifying property in chapter 2 is he's a Levi. What do we know about Levi? We know one thing about Levi. He's a killer. He's a murderer. That we know about Levi. Let's not forget that. The story about Shimon and Levi. Levi is a killer. Moshe, the first thing about Moshe, the first thing he does, he kills somebody. I'm not saying it's murder, that's not justified. But he does kill. Let's not forget that. That's the first story. The second story two Jews. There he doesn't kill anybody. There he tries to reason. He tries to talk to them. Listen, it's your re'echo. What are you doing? What, what is this? Which he gets the, the rebuke. Those are two Jews. And now you have the third story. Two non-Jews. He doesn't seem to care, actually, who the parties involved are. It's very simple for him. Either it's right or it's wrong. If it's right, do it. If it's wrong, stop it. That's all. It doesn't matter. And you might say to yourself, what is this guy doing? He runs off to a foreign country. He already got in deep trouble because he intervened when nobody asked him. And over here he intervenes again. And not only that, he intervenes for the women. Who, who have, the women don't, don't have any power. Hariah. They're being, every day they're being thrown out, right? He stopped. He's, he's, in other words, why would you do such a thing? You know, from, a, from a practical standpoint, this makes no sense. You're running away to a foreign land from which you know nothing. And you see that the, some downtrodden people, in this case the women, are being pushed around. And Moshe stands up and Moshe delivers them. It's actually very interesting. As I'm talking, I'm realizing something else. Let me say one thing. As, as I'm reading this thing, I realize something else. That this device... I, I'll make a feminist statement about the Bible. It happens to be the truth, I think. And the one who understood it was, was the book of Esther. Megillah Esther conflates two things. You have Achashverosh. And you have in that book two different people that are, that, are, that are persecuted and stepped upon. One is, one is the Jews. He's going to kill all the Jews. Willingly, he knows, he doesn't know, he doesn't care to know, whatever it is. And the reason he's going to kill all the Jews, actually, Haman says to him, there's a people out there who are scattered and dispersed among your, among your states. It means, they have no, it means they have no state. That's very important. 127 states, but the state of Jews is not one of the states. 
they have no land of their own. They have, they're easy prey, he says. So, and they're, they're, not, they're not worthwhile to keep alive. They have their own rules. They don't keep your laws. Get rid of them. Easy. Okay, take my ring, do whatever you want. That's chapter 3. Chapter 2, there's another group of people. Easy to beat up on them. That's the women. That's chapter 2, actually. How the women are to be gathered by the various officers of Paro. They're sent, and they're sent to Shushan, and they're prepared for a year with the cosmetic treatments, after which they'll be in prison forever. And, and the writer of the Megillah has all kinds of, I mean, it's, it's hilariously funny in a way, and very deeply cynical, but the point of the Megillah is that the Megillah says the one who persecutes the women, one who beats up on the women, is also a, these are bullies who beat up on other people. That's actually a very important point to remember. You know, the very the most recent scandal. That's the important point. The important point is not about the women in the mikvah. That is a horror, but that's not the main point. The point is, the guilty people over here are not this particular person. Well, he may be not, whatever. 25 years is in the synagogue. We are the people in the synagogue. Are you telling me that he didn't bully the people in his own city? Those are the guilty ones, by the way. The so-called victims. Some are victims. They're the guilty people. The enablers. It's not possible. And you see this with all over the place. People have a position, and they abuse people right and left. They shoot their mouth off, and their synagogue shuts up. They don't say a word about it. They let these guys get away with it. And they cry afterwards. Those are the guilty people. That's the point of the Megillah. The Megillah says, the same guy who's beating up the marginalized people can also beat you up. You'll be marginalized too. It conflates the two things. And the Megillah, of course, picks it up from the story right here. It's exactly the point. The same deliverer, the redeemer of the Jewish people, okay? In this great story of Moshe Rabbeinu, he brings about God's deliverance, but the, says the Chumash, let me tell you something. There's a, a previous story, it's exactly the same story at some little well in the land of Midian. The same person, it's no different. Vayoko Moshe Vayoshiyan, and the Chumash makes that point, but it's exactly the same story. The Megillah picks it up and runs with it, and it's also very funny in the Megillah. But it's exactly the point, okay? It's the same thing. There's no difference. Beating up the women in chapter 2 at the well is the same thing as, as, as Paro beating up the Jews. Killing Persia, it's exactly the same. And Moshe is unique in this sense. He's not going to put up with it. Everybody else does nothing. They do nothing. They don't want to stand up to it. They do nothing. And in doing nothing, you encourage and enable it. That's the point. And Moshe doesn't. And even though he's burned by it once, his own people said to him, and they get him thrown out. He's in exile. He didn't say to himself, I got a chain, you know something? <coughs> I'm not going to do it. He does. And it's not even my people. He said, not you. What happened to them? Midian. The priest of Midian has seven daughters. What was he? Not, not that he knows the priest. He sees a bunch of women being pushed around. He doesn't like it. So by Yashkit Hatzon, he, he saves them. And he also delivers, he, he, he waters the flock. Now here's the important point for our purposes. This until now was just an editorial, but it happens to be a very true one. 100% right. That's the, that's the truth of it, okay? And, and the fact is, there's something else about Moshe, and, the, and here's something else. In the case, let's take the other marriage scenes at the well. The case of Rivka, okay? Rivka, which is in the marriages in Brejit, it's by far the best, by a mile. Rivka and Yitzvah. It's been at me saying too much. But the fact is, <coughs> Isaac loves Rebecca. That's 
That's the fact. And he prays for Rebecca. Rebecca and Isaac, it's a, it's, it's a kind of arranged marriage. I, he's not there. But the, the basis of the marriage is clear. The basis of the marriage is the character of this woman. In two ways. First of all, she's very hospitable to the stranger. She has Abraham's qualities of hospitality. That's number one. Number two, she was willing to take this leap of faith to go to an unknown land. She makes that decision, not the family. She decides. So she has Abraham's great qualities of hospitality on one hand, and he's a risk taker. He's willing to follow God into the desert, unknown places. So that's Rivka. And that's one, that's one basis for marriage. And so she waters his flocks. He gives him and the camels and all that. Story number one. Now what's story number two? Story number two, story number two is Rachel. When it comes to Rachel, what do we know about Yaakov and Rachel? First of all, what does Rachel do for Yaakov in the story? Answer, zero. There's nothing. She does nothing for you. Nothing. He gives her, Yaakov pushes the well, rock off the well, Yaakov gives her flocks water. So Rachel does nothing for Yaakov, but when Yaakov meets Rachel, he sees her and he, and he, he kisses Rachel. Okay, that's what it says. Yaakov Yaakov Rachel, Yaakov was sent to find the wife. He sees Rachel, who he thinks is very beautiful, and he kisses her, and he uh, and uh, cries. So it's an emotional. What's might say the, the basis of the marriage is uh, you could say love. There's a romantic it's romance. It's a romance. That's what it. That's what it says. It's not morality. It's not. She does nothing for. Him. I'm not saying she's immoral, but there's no sense that she's moral either. There's no sense one way or the other. There's also no sense in any of the Rachel stories that she's particularly moral. Nor is there any sense of morality in the in the in the, in the Medrash about Rachel either. By the way, there's no the Midrash, the famous Midrash about Rachel, does not suggest she's a moral person. I would say quite the opposite. What is the famous Midrash? Midrash is not in the text. The Midrash says that when Yaakov was supposed to marry Rachel, that Rachel felt bad for her sister, the older sister, and since Yaakov didn't trust love on it all for good reason. He had given her a code, a set of simanim, of secret <coughs> messages, so he would know it's Rachel. He was afraid, says the Medrash, somehow Lovin would trick him. He didn't be suspicious. And Rachel felt bad for the sister. So that night, they got married at night, it's all dark and everything, he, and the Medrash is trying to explain how could Yaakov be fooled, how's that possible? So the Medrash says that Rachel gave Leah all the simanim. So they had a code to make sure that she's actually Rachel, and she gives the sister, who probably looks very similar to her, the sisters. She gave her all this, and the next morning he wakes up, and it's not Leia, it's not Rachel. That's the famous Medrash about the self-sacrifice of Rachel. Let me ask you a question. It is self-sacrifice, but is it moral? That's the question. I submit, of course not. Of course not. I have a brother. I love my brother so much, he's going to be in trouble. So therefore, I, uh, I, I decide to help my brother I'm going to, uh, to uh, defraud you. I love my brother. My brother needs money. He's desperate, desperate for money. Right? I love my brother dearly. And I have a certain possibility. I forgo my possibility to make money and I defraud you and steal a million dollars from you. Because I love my brother. So what kind of person does that? It's a demonstration of loving itself. I gave up my, my opportunity to make money by defrauding someone else for the sake of my brother. That's the story of Rachel and Leah. The Medrash never suggests, by the way, ever, that Rachel is a moral person. Never. It never does. 
But, and, and yet we love Rachel more than anybody else. Rachel is our favorite. Why, why is that? The answer is simple. Because the people you love, it's not about morality, actually. That's not true. We don't love people because they're moral. We can respect them. We love the people the most who actually love us. You love your mother for one very simple reason with Rachel. Because the world gives up on you. The whole world says you're never going to make it. That's what it says in Yermiyo. Rachel Mavaka Abonah. That's the image of Rachel. She's alone. That's the, she's the only one who never gives up on her children. There's nobody else. Everybody else gives up. And Rachel never gives up. So of course, Rachel dies having children. So of course, who do we love? Our mother Rachel. She's by far, there's no question, she's the most beloved of the matriarchs. Not because she passed the morality test. My point in the Chumash itself does not say she's immoral. never says it. But it makes a different point. Yaakov's marriage to Rachel it's not because she did anything wonderful. She does zero. She does absolutely nothing. And not only that, there's something else about Rachel in the story which suggests something negative about Rachel, which is this, which is this. No, she never switches anything in the Chumash. That's, that's a medrash. The Chumash says nothing about switching. Zero. But there's something else the Chumash says. When Yaakov, the Trophim is a separate, but this, yes, the Trophim does suggest that, but there's something else. That when Yaakov, when the, when the servant comes to, to the well in the story of Abraham and he meets Rebecca at the well, he tells the whole story, says that, um, it says that uh, Rebecca went, Atarat Rivka, Fataged Rebet Rebecca ran and told her mother's house what had happened. Right? With Yaakov and Rachel at the well, the Chumash says that Rachel ran and she told her father. She told the loved one. And that actually may seem like a small difference between the two of them, but I think it's a very telling difference. The Chumash makes a very simple point. From the very beginning, Rebecca is not so connected to the family. At the end of the day, she actually leaves. She's able to leave. The point of Rivka is she actually leaves her home. And even from the very beginning, she connects to her mother's family, but not to the father's family. In Book of Breshit, patriarchal book, the bearers of the culture, the official bearers of the culture, are the men. The fact that Rebecca didn't run to her father's house, but only runs to her mother's house, says something about Rivka, namely, she's not so connected. When it comes to Rachel, though, it's different. She runs off to Lavan. And the fact that she takes the trophim, it's not just that she steals trophim, which is problematic. She takes her father's trophim. In other words, she's taking him with her. That's the important point with Rachel. And she actually dies because of the trophim. So the Rachel is, is very problematic in the sense there is a connection in the case of Rachel to the house of love and to the culture. It's not about a break. But my point is this. When it comes to the marriage scenes of Rivka and Rachel, with Rivka, it's all about morality. It's about Rivka is this moral person who goes beyond what you would expect. Not only to give him water, but to give all the camels. You know what it means to give camels water? I mean, the, the camels drink a lot of water. So this kid is carrying this water back and forth and back and forth. That's amazing, you know? When it comes to Rachel, Yaakov gives her flocks water. She, doesn't, she does nothing. But Yaakov loves Rachel. Yaakov, it's emotional. Now we get to our story of Moshe. We'll see what's at play over here. Yes, what do you want to say? So also, maybe there's a connection between the fact that when Yaakov is born, his mother loves him unconditionally, no reason, and that leads to trouble. So here, he loves Rachel unconditionally, 
and there's sort of this connection that this isn't going to be a good thing. Right, the Chumash is a good point about Rivka and Yaakov. The Chumash never gives a reason, actually. I mean, reasons do emerge later on, I would say, in terms of their, their, the way they think. They're very similar. But it's a good point. I would say unconditional is true. In the case of Yitzhak, the Torah says he loves Esav, Kitzayin Befiv, because he feeds him. Um, which is a good reason. He cares for his father. And uh, he's the main one who cares for his father. I don't think it's negative at all, but... Anyway, that's a story with all kinds of interesting nuances. Now let's get back to it. Now we come to... This is the third marriage scene at the well. Fine. Avihen. They went back to their father whose name is Reuel. He has a name in Pasuk Yudchet. His father's name is Reuel. Reuel probably means Rey as a friend. El is God. God's friend. His name is God's friend. God's friend. He said to them, Why are you home so quickly today? So apparently, this was a common thing that they would not come back so fast. So maybe every day they would change. They have to go to the back of the line. Go to the back of the bus. Okay, fine. They're always the last. But they said, An Egyptian man saved us from the shepherds. It was a powerful word. Not only did he save us, even he even drew the water for us by Yashket Atzon, and he watered the, the, the flock. So he's really very fast. He saved us, he helped us, he watered the flock. We were home early. Who was this man? An Ish Mitzri. He's an Egyptian. He is an Egyptian. I mean, he's from, he's from Egypt. He looked Egyptian. Some Egyptian guy helped us out. He said to his daughters, V'ayo, where is he? Ayo is always a, always a, it's a criticism. Oh, he helped you out, so where is he? Why did you abandon this man? Why did you abandon him? Call him that he may eat bread. Now this actually is a very important puzzle for us for more than one reason. Let's get to the, let's get to the first point first. In the case of Rivka, it's about, all about morality. It's about good, good, good character, the basis for marriage. In the second story, it's a romance. It's a tragedy at the end, but it's a romance. Now, what is it in this case? Let's see. So in this case, it can't be a romance, first of all. It's not possible to fall in love with seven people at the same time. There's seven girls there. Maybe you could fall in love serially with seven, but not at the same time, and I think it's possible. It's certainly not... And what about good? What about uh, good, good, good qualities? What about fine behavior? There's certainly no fine behavior, because in this story, not only do they, they don't even invite him home. They don't thank him. They don't invite him home. In the case of Rivka and Rachel, in each case he goes to the house afterwards. But in this case, and the, and and they criticize for it. ten. Why did you abandon this man? Call him to eat bread. That's point number one. So it's neither romance nor is it uh, character, but there's a different basis for marriage, which is a very important point. It's probably the basis for most marriages in the world. The next passage. Moses agreed to stay with the man, and he gave him Tzipporah, his daughter, as a wife. So the basis for this marriage is not romance and it's not good character difference. In this case, there is a deep relationship 
but it's not with the daughter. The daughter is a means to cement the relationship to the one that Moshe agrees to stay with, which is the Ish, which is the priest of Midian, and we would say that the character of the priest of Midian in this pasuk is very positive. And I'll explain why in this way. First of all, the idea that when he would ish he'd see one, if he saved you, to save means save the weaker one from the stronger one. So first of all, Kiran Yochalechem, invite him to eat bread. Eating bread in the Bible often does not just mean eating bread. Eating bread means, yes, taking it to the house. It's a, it's a covenantal act very often. It often comes in the context of a covenant, like smoking the peace pipe. Basically, when you eat with somebody, it's not just a biological act. Eating food, as Mary Douglas writes extensively, meals are not just biological things, you eat food. Meals are social things. And she analyzes them in great detail, what the different kinds of meals, what that, what that signifies, etc. But there's another point over here, which is not obvious. Everything till now I said is obvious. Here's another obvious point about this man, Ruel, as he's called in the story. Ish Mitzri, he'd see one of some Egyptian man. Means he's a stranger. He's not a Midianite. An Egyptian man. That's all they know about Moshe. He's a Mitzri. When you read that pasuk, why did you abandon him, call him to eat bread? It resonates with a different pasuk in the Chumash, and very powerfully resonates with another pasuk. Stories about Joseph in Egypt. When Yosef is in Mitzrayim, what does the Chumash say about Yosef in the house of Potiphar? He abandoned everything into Joseph's hands. And he knew nothing. The point of Joseph in the house of Potiphar is Potiphar abandons everything into his hands. It means he gives Joseph everything. He abandons, it's a strange expression, to abandon into someone's hands. Everything except one thing. Everything except the lechem. Which of course, in the, story, the larger story of Joseph, it's like saying he got everything except for one thing. Except for the most important thing. Because the lechem, the story of Yosef, is the central feature of the whole story. How does power get all his power? You have the lechem. If you have the lechem, you have everything. So in effect, he gives him everything. But you know what? He didn't really give him anything. Because the lechem is the symbol, the means to power in the story of Yosef is the lechem. In contrast to this Ru'uel, in Ru'uel's case, why did you abandon this stranger? Let him come and eat lechem means the opposite. It means that in Ru'uel we have the person, the Egyptian culture is one that doesn't accept the stranger. Even Joseph has to eat lechem separately, right? Sefer Shemot begins by saying they may join with the outsiders. They're, they're a fifth column, they're a threat, they're the other. But this priest of Midian is different. The priest of Midian is the opposite. How could you abandon such a person? Is it a mitzri? Because that's what they're saying. A mitzri saved us. Ish mitzri, it's a mitzri saved us. Says, Who cares what he is? I don't care if he's a mitzri or what he is. What's the difference? He, good, good, good behavior. He's he, he healed, right? He saved you. Kiran lo v'yochavechem, invite him to eat bread. This is the person, v'yoh Moshe v'ashevet et ish. So Moshe agrees to stay with this man. Why would he agree to stay with this man? Because they're kindred spirits, that's why. Because they're exactly the same. Moshe is the matzil. On three separate occasions, Moshe saves the weaker party from the stronger party. In the intermediate case, he tries to intervene and talk. In the other two cases, he takes action. 
He's not from the big two of the three cases. He actually takes action. The only case where he talks is the two the two Jews fighting. Sees them as this parallel. So here maybe we can reason it out. Gets a shock, but he's the Matzil. And now we have this priest of Midian who has exactly the same outlook on life. So of course, by Yom Moshe Roshevet, Moshe agrees Roshevet to reside with the man in order to be fully integrated to the house of Reuel. Reuel gives him his daughter. So the two things Moshe has in the house of Reuel, he has the lechem and he has the wife. One might say exactly the opposite of the story of Yosef in the house of Potiphar. Obviously, the woman's off limits, at least as far as he's concerned, and the lechem he can't have. And in this case, Chumash says the opposite. In other words, he's found a very good place for himself. Great place for himself. He has the wife, he's going to have a job, he's going to have kids, and above all, the thing he cares about the most. He cares about Haish, he cares about the priest of Midian. Maybe it's a friend, maybe it's his Rebbe, who knows? Very important. And something else over here about Moshe, and this is an important point about Moshe. And that is, Moshe has many things in the Chumash. He's the hero of the Chumash. We must say about Moshe, though, and this is obvious, that he's not going to get the award of Father of the Year. You know what I mean? He's not exactly a family man. In fact, when he leaves Egypt, he heads out to the land of Canaan. He doesn't take his wife or his children with him. He just abandons them. He's a man who abandons his family later on. That's a fact, okay? Later in the Chumash, and the Midrash have emphasized this, we don't hear anything at all about the children or the wife. Maybe they reunite with him later. We never hear them. We know nothing about them. The only woman who appears in Moshe's life is appears in chapter 12 of Bamidbar, the Isha Kushis, which the Medrash identifies with Tzipora. The Rashbam thinks it's not Tzipora, but the Kushi means the totally other, it's the outsider. So, I make a simple point. The Midrashim explain this in a very simple way, which could even be the Pshat, that Moshe makes a choice in the Chumash. That's what Miriam objects to. Moshe makes a very simple choice. <coughs> From Moshe's perspective, he is, he is with God all the time. Which for Moshe's thinking, says the Medrash, and there's a basis in the text for this, precludes being with normal people. Moshe, Moshe is not a person, Moshe is not a social being in the Chumash. Moshe agrees, takes the Medrash, to be with God. And my point is that even before you get to God, okay, before you get to God, that may all be true, but in the story over here, it's very clear that the marriage of Moshe to his wife, Tzipora, is not about Tzipora, actually. Not about Tzipora. It's about the Ish. That the marriage is a marriage that is there for one purpose, and only one purpose. To cement the relationship between Moshe and the priest of Midian, two people that think alike. And therefore, the moment that Moshe leaves the priest of Midian, which comes very soon, in effect, he's going to leave his wife. Yes, initially she travels with him. But later on we discover she was sent away. And from a certain perspective, it makes total sense. Because she was, he wasn't interested in the first place. There's not a romance. Nor does he see in her any great compassion. There's no reason for it. It's not interested. But what? He's living with the priest of Midian. The priest of Midian wants this Moshe, whom he loves, to be with him always, forever. So therefore... He, does, he, he tries to do that in the two ways the Chumash talks about creating relationships or cementing one is through marriage the other is through, through Rechem 
So that's what it's about. So we shouldn't, in terms of Moshe's character, in terms of, I want to make a simple point, namely, that Moshe, as one who is not connected to the other, both in terms of the community and in terms of the family, that precedes any, 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 any divine encounter. The divine encounter is the next story, which we'll get to hopefully next week, but that's the divine encounter. But uh, even before that, that's the point of the story over here. Not a romance, not good, not, not good behavior. There's actually poor behavior here, which their father criticizes them. Why did you abandon him? Ayo is, a, is always a, where Ayeka? It's, it's a critique. Where is he? How could you abandon such a person? Bring him right now for Lechem. Yes? Two things. First of all, do, is Ruel and Ruth the same as, uh, as Yitro? I believe yes. Okay. And we'll see why so different names. We'll see you, next time. Yeah. Is it possible to say that Ruth's character, then Romance, could be called as politics? It could be politics, but Moshe is a complete, in other words, it's nothing to do with the person. That's my point about the marriage. It's not about marrying this particular person in any sense. The person is the daughter of the... Of the he could have picked out any of the seven. He beat seven at the same time. Yitro gives Tsipora. The name Tsipora is significant, but it's the, but the court politics, I prefer to call it uh, a kind of spiritual connection they make. Because that's what the Chumash emphasizes. He emphasizes the values. The values of Moshe and Me'uel are, are, are congruent values. Protecting the weak one, protecting the, protecting the, the one who's the marginalized one, his daughters. That's all. That relationship, are we saying that that affects Moshe very strongly? His relationship with Ruel? Well, I would, I would suggest that that's one reason he doesn't want to leave, I think. He doesn't want to leave. Uh, we don't know exactly why. We know he gives ten reasons not to leave, which means those aren't the reasons. He gives, the person gives a lot of reasons. He doesn't particularly have any reason to want to go back and save the Jews who caused them a lot of grief. And whose encounter with them is totally negative. So why would I leave my good situation here with a good, from a, with a good person, actually? He's a Kohen, he's a priest, a priest of Midian, okay, but he has good values. He's a religious person. We, we talk the same language. To save my brothers, whom don't, who don't particularly like me, and whom my experience with them is very negative. And not only that, you go to parts unknown, who knows what's going to be? And here I know. Here I got what I got. I got my family, job, priest, good life here. That's part of it. Okay, we'll stop here at this point. Next week, continue. Very nice.